get to that fifth level of why and you'll truly get to like the heart of everything. Hi, I'm Nils Vinya, and you're listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast, a show dedicated to demystifying leadership development one conversation at a time. Each week, I sit down with leaders in the B2B space to discuss their journey and what they've learned along the way. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous, and the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard, you just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be. Hello and welcome to another episode of the B2B Leadership Podcast. My name is Nils Vinya and today my guest is Eshwant Reddy. Eshwant, welcome to the show. Hi Nils, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm super excited to have you. Thank you for coming. Before we get started, would you kindly share with me and our audience the role that you're in today and the company that you work for? Absolutely. So I work for a company called Bidgely. We're a B2B AI company in the utility industry, definitely a pioneer in the space. And currently my role is a senior director on the customer success side, but I'm also handling operations as well. All right. So B2B AI, there's a lot of different ways that that could go. I mean, share you know, maybe just a use case or two or something that you get into and how you work with your customers. Most folks don't typically think about their utilities unless there's, you know, something of a high bill or, you know, they, they've got a problem. But we want to improve that interaction, right? So we work with utilities, whether that's electric, gas, or even water companies now across the globe. And we typically focus on, you know, two different areas. Obviously, with everything going on in the world, energy efficiency and, you know, decarbonization, all of that is, you know, a pretty important element at top of mind for many folks across the world. And that's an area that we're trying to help both utilities and customers in. And then the other pieces, again, you know, most customers don't think about their utilities. So we definitely want to improve that experience, right? Improve that customer journey, their customer satisfaction in how they interact with and how happy they are with their utility companies. So that's kind of the two key areas that we're focused in, but definitely both areas that we're happy to help our utility customers and through them, their end customers, like you and me, have a better experience. The end user, like thinking about how I might interact with my utility company or utility. So are we talking about like information about my usage or are we talking about just how I access my account, pay my bill, like basic stuff like that? Yeah, great question. No, absolutely. So it's actually the former. So it's your usage information. And again, this is where that AI component comes in. You know, we have patented algorithms where we're able to take that smart meter information and able to provide very, very personalized recommendations. So it's, hey, Nils, you know, last month we saw your, you know, heating went up by 20%. And we can give you targeted recommendations to say, hey, you know, here's what you could have done to, you know, help reduce some of that, you know, high heating usage. So it's definitely very personalized and not just, you know, kind of a generic recommendations. About all I get today is generic and it's not even in the form of recommendations. So I welcome the time when uh, you work with the utility companies here in Phoenix, Arizona. So <laughs> appreciate it. I look forward to that. Let's shift gears a little bit and let's, let's go back in time. 
And why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into your very first leadership position? So, you know, I come from a consulting background and in, in that essence, I've been leading teams and projects for, for quite a long time. Uh, but let me you know, focus more on Bidgely. So I would say that, you know, even coming to Bidgely in the startup world, which was a big goal of mine, you know, working at a SaaS company and sort of all that excitement and change that comes with, you know, any high growth startup, I had joined as a customer success manager. And the, the first leadership role I took on is as a director in the customer success team. So anytime you get moved up to a leadership position, I don't think it's, you know, any one factor, right? It's a, it's a confluence of factors, but I think the biggest one that you can always point to is trust, right? Anytime you become a leader, that really is validation that, you know, your leaders or, you know, my bosses, for example, right, have a certain level of trust in me that they know by putting me in this position, right, as a director, Right, managing other CSMs, managing you know the customers and sort of that portfolio of ACV and ARR, that they don't have to worry about anything going wrong. Right, that you will have the experience and the skill set to be able to deliver on whether it's you know tactical goals at a customer level or strategic goals at say kind of a organizational level that you have that ability. So I would say trust was a big piece of it, and of course that comes through you know execution and you know your track record. Okay, that's a really interesting point, and I agree 100% that trust is absolutely key. You know, and the trust being specific to the fact that they're not going to have to worry about the execution of what you are going to do. So could you share a little bit about how you built that trust? You started as an IC, as a CSM, and then you built that level of trust where you became the person to take over the department role and lead the rest of the team that you were previously a peer of. So how did you go about building that level of trust to where you became the individual who was promoted into the director position. Yeah, happy to go into the details. So, you know, let me touch on that trust piece again, right? So when I say trust, obviously, you know, your leaders have to have trust in you, but to move from that IC to sort of leadership level, a big piece of what I had to do was build trust cross-functionally, right? And not necessarily with cross-functional leaders, but actually obviously my counterparts that I'm working with, say on the delivery side on a day-to-day basis, right? It's, it's never simply impressing, you know, a leader. It's also impressing upon others that you work with day to day that not only you're capable, but that you are able to work with them effectively, that you're able to build those strong relationships, right? Every project has its issues and, you know, timeline Mm -hmm. challenges and scope creep. So again, how you manage that as kind of a collaborative team and making sure that you're able to work and build strong relationships, right? There's always friction, especially when you're sort of on the customer success side, you're an advocate for your customer. And of course, on the delivery side, you know, you've got sort of those internal and technical challenges and you've got multiple projects that you're trying to deliver on. So I think having that, you know, empathy and understanding that obviously to you, it's a one-to-one relationship of, hey, I need this for my customer. But obviously on sort of the delivery side, it's a one-to-many relationship of, well, you're one CSM asking for this and then they've got, you know, multiple CSMs asking for this and this. So I think having that, empathy and building a good relationship and knowing that, yes, you need something, but obviously there's other factors at play. So I I would say that's a big piece. Building the relationships, even at a peer level, cross-functionally is extremely important. And then, of course, end of the day, it is that execution and delivery. So I think I'll take an example of a high value customer, you know, high priority, you know, a lot of leadership, like executive visibility that had had some challenges. And I was put onto that customer as the new CSM, right? So 
you know, there were challenges with sort of managing that customer with the old CSM. So they transferred it over to me sort of to kind of turn around the account. And I was able to, within, I'd say, two weeks, actually, identify sort of a major issue that no one had realized on the customer side or our side and was able to turn that around. I mean, you know, this did require sort of this was pre-COVID, end of 2019, you know, early 2020, you know, going to the customer's site and having sort of a post-mortem and all of that. But the thing was that I was able to identify the issue, even being a new CSM, right, sort of, I think one of my superpowers, if I have any at all, Mills, is asking why. So I think simply mm-hmm. just asking the right questions to identify, you know, what could be the, the root cause of an issue was able to kind of find this one major problem that somehow had escaped, you know, the customer's attention, our attention, the previous CSMs. So again, I think that went a long way to sort of establishing my credibility that, you know, one, mm-hmm. not only am I detail oriented that, but I was able to then manage the customer's expectations, right? Turn it around. And even though obviously they were upset about the situation, which is understandable that we were able to correct it in a quick enough manner. And then we, from a relationship aspect, we flew to the customer's, you know, location, we're able to meet with them and do a whole postmortem and, you know, show them, Hey, you know, you are a valued customer and that we took this seriously. We've addressed it and we're doing X, Y, and Z kind of best practices in place. Make sure that this doesn't happen again. Wow. I want to dig into the superpower of asking why in just a little bit, but first got to unpack the cross-functional piece. And you mentioned how important it is to be able to work effectively across the organization, especially as an individual contributor level, but even at a leadership level, it's virtually the same thing. You know, you've mentioned empathy and understanding, but when it comes to the boots on the ground and actually in the conversations with people who sometimes are in departments and teams who have completely different goals than you do, and you are trying to get their buy-in or get their support to do something for the customer, which is what you're responsible for, and it collides eh, somewhat or completely with what they're responsible for, how do you reconcile that situation and how do you approach this from a mindset and a tactics perspective? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's funny. It's one of the questions I also ask when I interview for new CSMs and I th- because I think it is so critical. So I'm glad you asked that. And, and, and the answer is, right, it's always contextual. It depends. It's never a great place to be in, but I think it's one that every CSM, every company will face, whether it's through resource or technical constraints, right? I, I think the biggest thing is this is where kind of some of the best practices come in, you know, beyond, like you said, the relationship and the empathy. Obviously, I think having an internal check-in for every project, with, I'm sure, is a pretty standard practice. You know, you can try to address it there. But again, to your point, right, they're like, well, I've got X, Y, and Z priority, right? You know, you're further on the list. So I think it is also truly understanding from a customer segmentation perspective, right? Obviously, we all want to treat every single one of our customers, right, as, as number one and a priority. And they, all, they are, but obviously, end of the day, if there is a limit on what you're capable of delivering, you then have to prioritize. So I think, you know, keeping in mind not just sort of the boots on the ground, like you said, right, you know, this CSM needs this or this, you know, account executive, account manager is just like, hey, you know, this is my number one customer, please, you know, get this out there ASAP. Very understandable, but I think knowing your customer segmentation and then setting the expectations is important. So if the answer truly is, you know, my hands are tied and we've got the next sprint cycle before we can deliver something, I think then it's asking the right questions to make sure that is the only option, right? Is there a workaround or are there other priorities that can be shifted? If the answer is no, 
And I think you have to accept that, you know, you've done what you can, you have advocated for the customer. And then it's, of course, going back to the customer and then either resetting their expectations or potentially offering something else that would help them, whether as a workaround or just some other thing that they've been wanting that you're able to move that up, trying to give them something, right? Again, it's always a give and take, but this is also where, even if you're not able to give them anything, Mills, it's where building that strong relationship early on, right? There's always that kind of relationship capital that you build up. So again, they might be a little unhappy with you, but hopefully again, it's a, a temporary thing until you do deliver on what they want. Great points there. All right. So now that in action with this high visibility customer that had some issues, and you said within a couple of weeks, you were able to identify a major issue and a major problem. And this is where you get into your superpower of being able to ask why. So tell us a little bit more about what asking why means to you and maybe a little bit of background to where this came from. Yeah, I think, <laughs> and, and it sort of ties in with, you know, I'm a very detail oriented guy. And I, again, I would also say I'm a bit of a perfectionist and again, that can be a great thing. That can also be a detriment again, depending on how it's used and when it's used. So I've certainly gotten the feedback of, especially at a startup, right? It's you're moving quick, you know, you're growing quickly. It can't always be perfect, right? So you have to get it to a point where it's good enough, where again, the, the quality is there, but again, it doesn't need to be perfect. And funny little sidebar, I actually read a study that for startups, over-delivering was actually not any like benefit to the company, right? By over-delivering, you didn't gain anything from the customer compared to just delivering on what you promised. So again, perfectionism, can sometimes be the enemy. Now, you know, to kind of get back to that, so I've always been an extremely detailed person. I come from an analytics background. Again, I come from consulting. So I think, you know, as a consultant, you're just thrown into a situation, right? You could come from the utility industry, for example, or not, but you're expected to like learn quickly and be able to start executing quickly. So I think that's a big piece of why, again, to truly understand, right? I'll give you a very concrete example. I used to build dashboards, right? Reports and dashboards of a, a, a BI or business intelligent consultant. So a big piece, you just think, oh, okay, you know, I get the requirements and I start building and most of my time is spent on building a dashboard. But I would say that if you're doing it correctly, up to 50% of your time could be just understanding the requirements. Like you can say, I want X, Y, and Z, but then when I start digging in, right, I'm like, okay, what does that mean to you, right? And you're saying you want this outcome, but you kind of work backwards and you go, okay, why this outcome? And once you really start digging into the details, it's just constantly why it's, you know, how kids are always asking why, why, or <laughs> it's sort of that same mentality. Get to that fifth level of why, and you'll truly get to like the heart of everything. So that's where it comes from for me. I think it's just sort of that background and skill set that I grew up with where I had to, for my role, ask a lot of why's, but then I think it helped me quite a bit. So if I asked all the questions up front, Building a dashboard could take, you know, even 30% of my time, right? Asking the whys and truly understanding what you're trying to accomplish can save you a lot of headaches down the road. And I think that's kind of that same thing that applies to any project or any customer or any even SaaS company. If you've truly defined the outcome you're trying to identify, and of course, again, being able to adapt and change things quickly like agile, right? You can do that, but again, upfront, that is the key. That's fantastic. And I can fully appreciate the consulting background because I had some of that consulting background as well. When I was hiring for CSMs in when I was an operator, 
consulting background was one of the number one things that I always looked for. It was because of that exact scenario. You're thrown into a situation. You have to gain context. You have to gain understanding. You have to build relationships. You have to identify requirements before you can ever deliver anything. And I think sometimes in the wonderful world of CS and even in the wonderful world of leadership, there's a pressure that we feel to just deliver an answer. It's like, I need a dashboard. Here it is. <laughs> no, like that's not right. Let's take a pause and let's ask some questions. Ask why. And you always get a much more meaningful outcome, just like you described in that situation. So that's, that's really wonderful. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous. The B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. Head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you've always wanted to be. Now let's get back to the interview. Defining the outcome and inside of a startup in particular, I mean, and virtually any company, but there's a pace at which work happens, right? In a startup, it might be really fast. Another company might be a little bit slower, but in the grand scheme, every company has a pace at which things happen. So what is it about the environment that you've been in? You've seen the consulting side inside of a large organization. You've seen now this customer success side. What does it really take? I'm curious, like, what does it really take to define the outcome in advance before you just jump into doing the work? Absolutely. You know, startups, especially kind of a high growth SaaS company is different than consulting. In terms of the difference, I think with typical, and again, let me relate this more to say IT consulting rather than management consulting, right? I think it's a bit more in line with how Bidgley's process works. So, you know, you take any large kind of implementation, right? You've got this large sort of waterfall method and you've got a long, long period of time where even if you change requirements from a consulting method, it's just, okay, we've changed requirements and we will take longer to launch. That isn't going to be very successful in a SaaS model, right? You from a time to market, right? Go to market, all of that aspect. Again, it's a, it's a competitive space, right? You'll have your competition and you'll have your other SaaS companies that are competing against you or even large incumbents. So you have to have a better scope defined up front. But again, if it isn't perfect, the thing is that it's more important that you're able to be agile and adapt quickly. So I think from an outcome perspective, what I look for, again, when I say thought leadership, right, you know, that's something that people like to throw that word around. And it can mean a lot of different things. You can be a thought leader in coming up with completely new ideas. You can be a thought leader from, from my perspective as a CSM, it's connecting the dots, like truly understanding what your customer wants and being able to think ahead of my product does X, Y, and Z. I can see this based on discussions that even though our product will meet 80% of their needs, here's sort of the roadmap that I know of our product. And here's sort of the pain points I can see that we're not going to be able to cover. So from an outcome perspective, it's, yes, let's keep moving this forward based on what we've agreed to. But truly to me, a thought leader as a CSM is, you know, you don't have to be innovative and et cetera. It's truly understanding your customer, right? That is the thought leadership of here's their pain. Here's what we're delivering. Here's our roadmap. Where's the gap, right? And this is, again, where you can help support sales. So 
that's my thing of from a consulting to summarize all that. It's okay if something wasn't fully thought out. You just simply push out the timelines. I was that great. No, but again, I've seen it happen time and time in consulting. I think with a startup, it's managing those expectations earlier, trying to catch those earlier. And now, of course, you know, timelines can shift. But again, hopefully it's nothing like what I've seen in the consulting world is that you're able to move things along much faster. A really interesting distinction there of the term thought leader. And normally this is thrown out. And when you're talking about industry level stuff, that's, I mean, the vast majority of time, oh, Nils a thought leader on this. Ashwant is a thought leader on this, but it's kind of at a uber big picture level stuff. But what you're saying is actually, it's 100% applicable to be a thought leader as an individual contributor working with a client as a CSM, for example, if you're able to connect the dots, if you're able to drive the customer forward and be prescriptive about how they can get more value out of your solution. Did I get that right? Yeah, no, exactly. You know, you don't have to be an industry leader or you don't have to be like a C-suite executive to be a thought leader, right? You just need to be really good at a specific thing, right? You need to be the leader in that aspect. Again, for me, any CSM that I hire, I, again, they don't need to be a thought leader to start off with, but I look for that aptitude, right? That capability of if I, you know, give them the training and onboarding and after a couple of customers, will they be able to put those dots together to put the customer's sort of goals and needs and connect the dots to the company's goals and needs? And you are being a thought leader now. Are you an individual contributor? Yes. But I think those are the people that have that aptitude to grow into future leaders. That's wonderful. And is that language that you're actually using with your team, like telling them that this is what a thought leader means? This is the expectation that we all have of moving towards when you connect the dots and when you lead your customer this way? Or is this things that you think about just behind the scenes more? I don't think I've used the word thought leader directly with them, but what I've explained to you of kind of the meaning behind it and where I'd like to see them grow. Absolutely. I mean, I think it can't just be in my head. I have to share, you know, again, how do I help you grow? But how, you know, what do you need to grow? What is that next level? Right. So anytime you're managing someone, you're not only managing kind of their work and performance, but also their future growth. So, you know, like I say, if you want to move up, you need to kind of train your replacement. So that's my goal of, just because I was a good CSM, right, to be now a good manager of CSMs, how do I make sure that, you know, what I did right, that they have either that ability already or we can train and kind of coach them to that? I was just thinking of if I was a CSM on your team and my boss referred to me as either a thought leader or a potential thought leader, that would give me an awful lot of incentive to break it down in a way that was achievable for me, not looking at some of the industry people and saying, well, I'm so far away from what they're doing. There's no possible way I could ever be a thought leader. And then when you reframe that, I was like, wow, that's a really nice way to think about it. And something that's very achievable and attainable and you're hiring for that already. So, you know, they're predisposed. And I, that's what I was curious about whether or not you're using it with them. I think it would be an incredibly empowering. I, I think I should. I, I think I just got a good piece of advice. So I, I will apply that. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Okay. So I would take just a little step back and we talked about your background in consulting before. I want to talk about the transition, like kind of big career wise steps that you've made. Cause I know, you know, coming back to an IC CSM position was not, you know, at the same level as you were at before you had made a lot of strides in the consulting world. You'd run your own firm as well. So talk us through what the progression was like and what it actually was really like to take a step back 
in title in order to get into this world of customer success and then now get the promotion to director? It is a, it is a very large shift, both obviously from a role perspective, but also from a, a mental perspective. To your point, I have been running my own consulting company, been working with sort of you know senior executives or even the C-suite. Again, this is more you know, management type of consulting. So, you know, shorter engagements, but again, high visibility, high impact. So going from sort of that 30,000 foot view, very strategic type of initiatives, and you're brought in for very key projects to sort of moving back to being an individual contributor. It was a, a difficult choice to make, but I, I think the way I've shaped my career, which again, as, as I've grown more experience, I've gotten better about being thoughtful of what comes next. But in general, at a high level, I used to think, you know, every five years, am I still enjoying what I do, right? Do I see myself doing this for another five or 10 years? And again, that five years is just, you know, a rough benchmark, but I'd originally worked, you know, for large companies such as IBM. So the reason I went independent to run my own consulting you know, company was, do I see myself going down this path? And I was like, you know, 10 years from now, if I'm an IBM partner, is this what I want? Would I be happy if that's the goal? And I realized the answer was no, that isn't what I wanted. So I was like, okay, you know, I come from sort of this typical first generation immigrant background. You know, my parents have always run their own businesses. So I always had that interest or sort of, experience growing up, having helped them with their businesses as a kid and during college, et cetera. So I took that leap, you know, I left a pretty comfortable job at IBM to go work for myself and, you know, worked out well for me for about five, six years. And then I looked at, okay, do I want this for another five or 10 years of constantly working with new customers, et cetera, et cetera. And I had actually consulted with a few startups. I used to live in Los Angeles at the time. Most of my customers or clients typically were Fortune 500, Fortune 100, I mean, just massive companies. And I worked kind of almost like pro bono or kind of doing some advisory services for some founders and co-founders for some early stage, some even pre-funding startups in LA. And just, it was so different, but it was also infectious. I would say it was so interesting being around these folks who are not only extremely creative, but extremely passionate, right? If you're going to be a startup founder, I've you know, I had some conversations with my CEO about this and he's like, you know, to be a CEO or a founder of a startup, you have to be a little bit crazy. And I think I have to agree with him because just, you know, the odds are stacked against you. It is difficult and demanding journey that has no guaranteed outcome. So, but again, that takes that passion and interest. So I started working with them and really enjoyed it. And I said, you know what? Do I need to continue to be a consultant or consult for startups? Why don't I go work for a startup myself? And so that is what really turned me on to this of, I think this looks more interesting. This ties in with sort of my long-term interest of being my own boss, right? And again, that doesn't have to be in consulting. It could be having my own company or running my own startup. So that's where I took the plunge. And again, it in this case kind of worked out that it made the most sense to take this kind of individual contributor role at this company, you know, Bidgley. And I, I actually, in a way, you know, looking back was difficult, right? It is hard to sort of go from having a lot of autonomy and a lot of, I think, executive visibility, right? Again, it is like, you know, you're working directly with some key senior leaders to sort of being managed again. And again, you know, Bidgley, we don't, micromanage. I don't, none of the other leaders do. So once you're trained and you're capable of running by yourself, we give you that freedom. And then I look to my CSMs to come to me for help 
And of course, I touch base with them regularly. But again, I once I know that they've sort of been ramped up enough and they've got it, I'm like, hey, you know, I, I trust you. I believe in you. Just let me know where I can help. But I let them kind of run free. So, I mean, I had that freedom too, but certainly you are no longer necessarily the boss. So it's a hard shift and one that I look at carefully of if someone wants to come in. And we typically do hire at an individual contributor level because of the complexity of our product, the uniqueness and the challenges of the utility industry. So I truly do say that I made the right choice, but of course it was a difficult choice and it's not one for everybody. So I will definitely say not everyone is capable of sort of going from either like a manager or kind of individual owner type level to being an IC. Thank you for sharing, you know, what's really like behind the scenes. There's so much there. One in terms of just, there are a lot of different ways to progress your career, period, right? And there's a lot of different industries. And the field of customer success is extremely hot right now. There's a lot of interest in people wanting to come in, but it usually requires taking a step back because whatever you did before, maybe it translates similarly, or maybe the skill set like of consulting applies very well. But the reality is in a lot of earlier stage companies, like the opportunities are at the ground level, like working with clients and building up that trust, as you noted. So wonderful to hear the, the conscious decision to take a step back from <laughs> engaging with C-level and senior leaders at Fortune 500 companies to going to a startup where you're managing accounts and a book of business is a dramatic shift, all right? And that's okay, because that was what you wanted for the long term, sounds like, to set yourself up for the future. Yeah, it's an investment in myself. It's like, am I taking a step back? Absolutely. Is it a big career pivot? Absolutely. But I'll be honest, I've been at Bisley for two and a half years. I mean, the, the sheer amount of things I've learned, I, I joke that working at a startup is almost like dog years. Like every year is times seven, right? At so least, just at least. how much I've learned exactly, you know, and how, how quickly I've been able to also move up, right? So yeah, it's, you know, I started out as an IC, but, you know, I've already now been, you know, promoted multiple times to a senior director. Now I not only do customer success, I've also taken on operations recently. So I, I think if, again, you are able to execute and prove yourself, a startup is truly a meritocracy compared to consulting or, you know, large companies. Yeah. And it's, a, you know, different strokes for different folks. There's a place for everybody. But the key is if you're not 100% happy where you are, ask yourself the hard question of, do I want to be doing this in five years, just like Ashwanth told us? And if the answer is no, then you got some soul searching to do and some help get some help from the outside to figure out what is the right path. And, you know, there is a right path for you someplace. So awesome advice there. All right. So last question, if you were going to able to go back in time and sit down with your younger self, let's put it at, I don't know, maybe that as you were rising or early on in that IBM consulting days, and you knew everything that you know today, all the experiences you've had, good, bad, the other, right? And you were to sit down with your younger self and share some advice. What advice would you share? Is that the million dollar question? Is this what we're going to wrap up with? <laughs> a million dollars at the end of every episode because it always comes here. <laughs> so many things. I think that's a whole other episode by itself. But I think if I had to sum it up, I think taking risks feels scary. And, and it is scary. You know, there, there is no guarantee. But, you know, looking back, I'm glad I've taken the risks that I've taken. If anything, maybe I would have even push myself again, depending on where you live, who you're you know, connected with the whole startup world was sort of this kind of alien entity to me. I, I truly wish being where I'm at now and kind of what I've learned that I could have gotten into the startup world so much sooner. Like once I was introduced to it, I really just 
threw myself into it in kind of the Los Angeles area where I was living, which again is a smaller ecosystem of startups and kind of you know venture capital, but definitely in the Bay Area and more so now globally, now that you know post-COVID we're all pretty remote or distributed. That's probably the biggest piece of advice is that I learned a lot. I think a couple of years in consulting is extremely valuable. I think starting kind of those large Fortune 500, Fortune 100, like you learn quite a bit. I think you learn a lot of processes, frameworks, methodologies. I mean, fundamental things that when early in your career can shape you and lay that foundation to make you that thought leader as I was talking about, right? Again, it's not necessarily, again, there's lots of smart people out there, but again, how you use that intelligence, again, being able to connect the dots, right? I read constantly. My biggest worry is that, Okay, I've read 10 articles, but what do I remember of those 10 articles? What am I going to actually be able to use, right? It's not just pure intelligence, but what do you do with that intelligence or that information and how do you use it? So I would say I spent about 12 years in consulting. I think if I'd spent just three or four, right, there's no hard number, but I think after a couple of years, I would have had the foundation I needed and I would have loved to have had that exposure to startups and that whole industry and kind of world in general, because I do think innovation and technology is the future of the world as we've seen. And you now have major companies that have sort of innovative arms or even fund startups, right? Like, you know, Google funds tons of startups through their kind of, you know, VC arm. And you've got companies that are large, but they set up sort of these almost mini startups within their company that they can control, but give them the freedom to innovate like a startup. So clearly that model that startups have established has taken hold even in large companies. So that would be my advice to myself of, again, fear can be a good thing. And again, I didn't let my fear stop me. So I did a lot of the right things. You know, I took the chance to leave IBM and go work for myself. Then I took the chance to go back to being an individual contributor with the hope and, you know, expectation that I'll prove myself and continue to grow and learn. So, you know, don't let your fear stop you. But I would say for me, it would have been, pivot much earlier into startups. Love it. Awesome advice. Well, Ashwant, it's been wonderful to spend a little time with you today, hearing about your approach to leadership, your leadership path in and of itself, how important trust is, how important it is to ask why, how important it is to be a thought leader and connect the dots. So thank you so much for sharing your stories and your wisdom and your expertise with us. Thank you so much, Nils. It was a pleasure to be on and love the wonderful questions you asked me. Even now, I think I've learned a lot and I will definitely make sure to use thought leaders with my direct reports. Awesome, man. I look forward to hearing how that goes and take care. I'll talk to you soon. All right, you too. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the B2B Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd welcome you to subscribe and give the show a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at b2bleadershippodcast.com. As always, I'm Nils Vinya, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Take care and have a great rest of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the B2B Leaders Academy. The cost of not consistently developing your leadership skills is enormous, and the B2B Leaders Academy features monthly leadership training and live coaching. Being a great leader isn't hard. You just need a guide and the right set of tools. So head on over to b2bleadersacademy.com to join and become the leader you have always wanted to be.